God's people said, Amen. Amen. Guys can be seated. Thank you. Well, I want to start a new series today. And I set myself some parameters for this series. One of those parameters is that we've been spending a lot of time in the New Testament. So I want us to spend some time in the Old Testament. We really are a both Testament kind of church. We believe that both Testaments are God's word to us and they have value to us. Things that we need to learn and understand about who God is and what God does, is doing, will do, and also how He works in our lives. I also know this is summertime. Some of you have got vacation planned and picnics and family reunions and all those kinds of things. And so you're not going to be here every week. So doing a series that kind of builds one upon the other can kind of be kind of productive because if you miss a couple, you can kind of get lost in the midst of it. So I want them to kind of be non-interdependent installments of this series. So just things. So, so I've come up with a series entitled Legacies. And I just want to look at some figures from the Old Testament that still speak to us today. And just to kind of ease our 40 days withdrawal, where we've been focusing so much on the Word, today I want us to focus our attention on the legacy that King Josiah provides to us. Now, King Josiah, probably biblically, was more impacted by the Word of God than any other figure in the Scriptures. And I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Now, you're going to find the story of King Josiah, who was the last independent king of the line of David until Jesus. Now, there were a couple of kings after him, but they were really just kind of puppet kings underneath foreign domination. He was the last independent king king in the line of David. We find his story in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. You can also find it over in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23. But today I want to focus on, on 2 Chronicles. Just, there's just so much time to go around, so we want to focus in on, on one of these. Now, for you to understand what's going on, you need to understand a little bit of where Josiah fits in the history of the people of God. One of the things I, I regret is that so often we jump around the Bible so much that it's hard for us to understand the progression of everything that moves along. So let me just really kind of give you a quick whirlwind tour of, of Old Testament history up to the point of Josiah. Obviously the scripture starts out with creation and then the story of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And leading us to Joseph, where the people of God now, the descendants of Abraham, are living in Egypt. And the conclusion of the book of Genesis, they're, they're essentially in bondage now in Egypt. And they're there for 400 years until God calls Moses. And God uses Moses as his instruments to free his people from bondage. And they make their way out and they come to Mount Sinai. And it's really there that they become the people of God. They were the descendants of Abraham, but in there they enter into a special relationship with God at Mount Sinai. Eventually they make their way into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. They cross the Jordan River at Jericho and they make their way in and they eventually take possession of the land. Not exclusive possession, but they take possession of the land under Joshua. Now when God first brought the people into the promised land, His intent was for them to, be a, for them to operate as a theocracy. God would be their king and He would rule over them and through them in the land. And so they had no king. Unfortunately, they weren't all that great at being ruled by God as well. So as we look at the book of Judges, we see a series of occasions in which 
They rejected God as their king, lived the way they wanted to, experienced the discipline of God, and then God in His grace, based upon their, re- their repentance, restored them through the judges. And so we see folks like Gideon and Deborah and Samson and others that God uses to restore the people and trying to bring them to a place where He can kind of be the king over them. They eventually don't want that anymore. Just like most of us, they want to be like everybody else around them. So they eventually go to Samuel, the last of the great prophets, and, they, and it says to, the, and says to him, you know, we want a king like everybody else. We want to be like all the other nations around us. We don't want to have God as our king. We want to have a human king that God can maybe rule through, but we want a human king. And God relents to their requests. And in 1020 B.C., we have the first king of the nation of Israel, and his name was Saul. Immediately following that, we have David, and then we have Solomon. And so, by the time Josiah comes to the throne, the people of Israel, the people of God, have had a king for 400 years. Now, that's a lot older than our nation is, right? Our nation is, what, 130, 235 years old? They've had a king for 400 years. After Solomon, the nation was divided in two. Solomon's son, Jeroboam, rejected the counsel of the, of the older men and embraced the counsel of his young hotheads and rejected the requests of the people. See, Solomon had been building a lot of stuff. He'd been a lot of pressure on the people. They had to leave their fields to come and work for the government and etc. And, and they were ready to be done with all of that for a season. We need a chance to breathe, to rest. And, and Rehoboam said, That's, you think my father was bad? I'm going to be a lot worse. And what happened was there was a, a civil war. There was a breakage. So you, then you have the northern tribe of Israel and the, southern, the north, northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. That, had ha- that happened in 931 B.C. Now, since Josiah came to the throne around 640 B.C., that had been about 300 years that they had been a divided nation. By the time he came to the throne, the northern kingdom of Israel had been gone from the territory for almost 80 years. In 722 B.C., when God was tired of all their rebellion, he, he went ahead and fulfilled all of his prophecies, he said, and he just took them out of the land at the hand of the Assyrians. All that was left behind were the people who were so low on the food chain that the Assyrians didn't even bother to move them out of the land, to deport them. That was 80 years before then. Then, when Josiah leaves the throne in 609 B.C., within 25 years, the southern kingdom of Judah is going to be gone. They are in such a state of spiritual decline that God is ready to get rid of them as well. And they're going to go into captivity in 587 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians. Later, in 537 B.C., God would restore them through using um, the Persians. But they, they, their state of spirituality has declined so much that God has done with them. In fact, as we read the story, we're going to find out that there hadn't really been a godly king in the nation for over 60 years. That Manasseh, who had served for the longest period, who was, who was Josiah's grandfather, had actually been such a pagan king that God had already sent him off into exile, and he kind of had of a come-to-Jesus moment at the end of his life, and God restored him to the land for a while, where he got to be the king, and he started some reforms, but it was kind of a little, little too little, it was too little too late to really have an impact. So when Manasseh died, Josiah's father, Amon, came to the throne. He was 22 years of age. He was caught in the middle of some political intrigue. Assyria was still... Th- you know, exercising their authority and power in the region. And inside of his 
nobility, his leadership inside of the palace, if you will. There were those who were pro-Assyrians and anti-Assyrians. And he, as this 20-year-old, was kind of, 22-year-old, was kind of caught in the middle. And he was assassinated by one of the parties. The common people had had enough of it, so they stepped in and killed everybody else. (laughs) And at the ripe old age of eight, Josiah becomes king. He steps into that context. Hundreds of years of history of poor kingship. Spiritual decline that's off the charts. God's ready to bring the final curtain down on the nation. He's already done that with the northern tribes. The, 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 the palace is screwed up. There's thresh, pressure everywhere. And into that steps his eight-year-old Josiah. Let's read together chapter 34. And, and I'll, I'm going to skip a couple places as we go along. And, and then uh, we'll read some portions of chapter 35. And, and then read the conclusion of, of Joshua's life, Josiah's life. And then i just like to make some... Draw some thoughts for us. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So he started out in 640 B.C. And he died in 609 B.C. At the ripe old age of 39. He'd already been king for 31 years. He did what was right in the Lord's sight. And he walked in the ways of his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighth year of his reign, in other words, when he's 16, in the U.S., you're just getting your... Driving permit here, in, right in Massachusetts, at the age of sixteen, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. Blaze a new territory because the kings didn't do that. In the twelfth year, when he began to, in other words, when he's twenty, and in the twelfth year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of all the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. Then, as in his presence, the altars of the Baals were turned down, torn down, and the incense altars that were above them, he chopped down. The Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images, he shattered and crushed to dust and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. He was doing everything he could to desecrate these places. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars. So he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon. And as far as Naphtali and on their surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars, and he smashed the Asherah poles and the carved images to powder, and he chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. When we were, I want to show you a, a picture of a couple of these. When the nations was divided in 931 B.C., one of the challenges of the northern king of Israel was to find a way to keep his people from having to go to Jerusalem in order to worship God at Solomon's temple. So part of what he did was he established some high places where they could go and worship without having to go to Jerusalem. One of those was in Shechem. The other one was way up north of the Sea of Galilee in the area of Dan, which was right by the river that Christina showed you. That river literally is formed over about a half a mile period. The water literally just comes out of the ground and creates this rushing river that starts the Jordan River. And um, this is actually a picture of the foundations of the altar that was built during the days of Jeroboam, I mean Jeroboam, who was the uh, Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern nation of Israel. The only thing that's not original there is the steel kind of thing that's built, but that's what it would have looked like in those days with the horns on it, reflecting the horns that are on the the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, so the the people were being drawn aside to worship God in these high places. And mixed in with that was all the Canaanite worship that had been going on for centuries, for millennia. The next slide is a. Uh, is an altar from the city of Megiddo. And this altar probably dates back to almost 3,000 years before the time of Christ. 
And they had been engaging in pagan worship and it was still active in the land. And probably on this very altar that they excavated, this is 17 layers down, which probably even human sacrifices took place in this altar in its day. That's what Josiah is up against. He's a 20-year-old. Got thousands of years of history in the land that's just given themselves over to a worship that satisfies the self. You know, it's it's you know it's the satisfies the sexual urges and the the hedonism and the all of that stuff that goes with it, the fertility rites, and he's taken all of that on as a twenty year old. Pick up in verse eight, in the eighteenth year of his reign, that makes him twenty six. I started pastoring when I was twenty six. In the eighteenth year of his reign, in order to cleanse the temple, the land, and the temple, Josiah set out Shephon, son of Azaliah, along with Messiah, Massasim. Messiah. This is why I don't like to preach out of the Old Testament. Too many hard words. Along with Messiah, the governor of the city, and the recorder, Joah, and the son of Joahaz, to repair the temple of the Lord. So they went to Elkiah, the high priest, and what is going to run through here is they're going to start talking about the fact that they gathered up the money to begin to repair the temple. They had let Solomon's temple get so run down that nobody really wanted to go to worship there anymore. It, it, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was now in such disrespair um, that they needed to restore it. And Josiah is taking that on. Let's pick up in verse 14. When they brought out the money that had been deposited in the Lord's temple, that was went into the treasury of the temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord, written by the hand of Moses. Consequently, Hilkiah told Suppon, the court secretary, I-, I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. And he gave the book to him. Suppon took the book to the king, and also reported, your servants are doing all that was placed in their hands. They have emptied out the money that was found in the Lord's temple and have put it into the hand of the overseers and the hand of those doing the work. Then Suppon, the court secretary, told the king, says, says, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Suppon read it in the presence of the king. Maybe for the first time in 50 to 60 years, the king of Israel is now going to hear the word of the Lord. When a king heard the words of the law, it says he tore his clothes. Then he commanded Hilkiah, Ahakim, son of Shephon, Abdon, son of Micah, Shephon, the court secretary, and the king's servant, Isaiah, go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those remaining in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that was found. For great is the Lord's wrath that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord in order to do everything that's written in it. So he's instructing them to go find a prophet. And they land up going, as we see in, verses 22, in verse 22, to a prophetess by the name of Huldah. There's actually a a, a gate in the temple area that was named after her. And we see her response in verse 23. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Say to the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring disaster on this place and on its inhabitants, fulfilling all the curses written in the book that, you, that they read in the presence of the king of Judah. Because they've abandoned me and they burn incense to other gods in order to provoke me with all the works of their hands. My wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. But say this to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. As for the words that you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. This is the Lord speaking. I will indeed gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster that I am bringing on this place and on its inhabitants. Then they reported this all to the king. So the king sent messengers and gathered all the elders of Judah and Israel. The king went up to the Lord's temple with all of the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Israel, as well as the priests and the Levites and all the people from great to small. 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. For the first time in 50 to 60 years, the Lord's people are hearing the word of the Lord. Look at verse 31. And next the king stood at his post, and he made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of the covenant written in this book. And then all those in present in Jerusalem and Benjamin entered into a covenant as well. And so again, we read a summary statement that he removed everything from the land and created a place where the people could worship the Lord. The beginning of chapter 35 is, tells us about the record of the observance of the Passover, the Feast of Passover for the first time in generations. And it had, they hadn't seen an observance of the Passover like this since the days of Samuel for over 400 years. But let's pick up with verse 20. And we'll kind of see how life ends for Josiah. After all this that Jodiah had prepared for the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, marched up to fight at Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to confront him. But Necho, basically what happened is, is there, there was like an international highway. It came, out of, it came out of Africa through Egypt, up the coastal plain, to north of Jerusalem, and then there were three different places where you could kind of bear right and avoid the hip mountain area of Carmel and that kind of stuff, and you could bear off to the right. And one of those paths was at a place called Megiddo. And I actually have a slide of it. And you can see, it's going to come up here in just a minute, um, that as they, this, this city that was built up on top of a hill had a dominating place over the plain that allowed the armies or those traveling from south to north, to, or north to south, to be able to cut through the mountains without having to climb over the top of them. And there were three different places where you could do that. And, and on each of those places, these big cities were built, basically fortresses to control it, one, to collect tax, and second, to enter into battle. The Egyptian army is moving out to join Assyria in a battle against Babylon. Josiah is, it, it fills a compulsion as a king of Judah not to let just an army to march through his land. And so he goes out to meet him in battle. And we see that in verse 22, But Josiah did not turn away from him. Instead, he, in order to fight with him, he disguised himself. He did not listen to Necho's words from the mouth of God, but he went to the valley of Megiddo to fight. The archers shot King Josiah and said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. So his servants took him out of the war chariot, carried him in the second chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem. And then he died. And there they buried him in the tomb of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah chanted a a dirge over Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women still speak of Josiah in their dirges to this very day. They established them as a statute for Israel. And indeed they are written in the dirges. The rest of the events of Josiah's reign, along with the deeds of his faithful love, according to what is written in the law of God, and his words from beginning to end are written about in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. Josiah is certainly a monumental figure in the Old Testament. Though many of you probably had never didn't know his story, maybe never even heard of him before, he saw probably also was more impacted by the word of God than any other king in Israel Israel history. I want to look at use a lens today to look at King Josiah. What legacy does it leave to us? And 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 I want to use the lens of what does it really take to make a difference? You know, one of the things I've said to you before is that I've never met anybody in, in my entire life who has said to me, "I want my life to amount to nothing." I want people to get to my funeral and say, this guy totally wasted his life and he had no impact. I, I've never met a single person like that. Have you? Do you know anybody who just says, I don't want my life to count. I don't want to make a difference. I want to be totally useless. A waste product in every sense of the word. I, I don't know anybody like that. All of us in some way or another want our lives to make a difference. 
Josiah's life made a difference. And I, and I, I think we can look at his life and we can see just some very basic principles that we can apply to our own lives about how it is that you and I can make a difference. And that's a legacy in some ways that he leaves to us. And one of those is, and, and, and you and I need to embrace that if we're going to be people who that, who, where our lives are really about making a difference, we need to accept the fact that age is not a factor. It doesn't matter if you're young, doesn't matter if you're old, or you're somewhere in between. Age is not a factor in making a difference. Josiah was eight years old when he came to be the king. Eight years old. At the age of 16, he started seeking the Lord. At the age of 20, he started to change the nation. Granted, he was the king. His father had been the king. They got rid of him when they didn't like what he did. So it wasn't like he, you know, it, it was a risk-free stance he took. But he was young. His grandfather, Manasseh, who at the very end of his reign, when he was an old man, kind of got his heart right, and he began to implement change. It doesn't matter if you're old or whether you're young or somewhere in between. Age is not a factor in making a difference. You can be a 12-year-old sitting in your 6th grade class and you can make a difference. You can be 82 years of age and still making a difference. And everywhere in between. Even in those pressure cooker years where you feel like you've got so much stuff to do that you really can't make a difference, age is not a factor. We can make a difference. You know, one of the things that we celebrate around here is you know, that we've had a wonderful connection with the Christian Bible Fellowship at Worcester Polytechnical Institute for the last five or six years. That ministry was started by college kids over 25 years ago and is still impacting the lives of students today. It doesn't matter what age you are. You can make a difference. And, and we need to kind of set, set, sometimes on the younger side, well, you know, I'm too young. You know, let somebody else be the, the leader. Let somebody else step up and take the responsibility. In other words, we get a little older and says, well, I've been there, done that. I'm just stepping back and I'm not doing anything. Age isn't a factor. Second thing, we really need to appreciate the power of personal commitment, of making a choice and sticking by it, drawing a line in the sand and staying with it. Josiah, he hears the word of the Lord. He's already started all these reforms. He's willing to stand in the temple and say, I'm entering into a covenant of God. Who's joining with me? He's willing to make a personal commitment, to make a choice. I've got to tell you, there is tremendous power in making a personal commitment and making it known. When you're making a personal commitment, you don't, you don't make it known. I mean, that's really not a commitment. You can kind of fudge that anytime you want. But when you draw a line in the sand and create accountability saying, I'm going to be different, it really has an impact. Especially when you back it up with action like Josiah did. He's out changing the nation. And he's changing himself. And he's changing the temple. And he's readying the people to be the people of God. He's backing it up with action. And, and you and I need to appreciate the power of personal commitment in making a difference. I remember when I was in, in high school, I really had a hard time declaring myself as a believer in Christ. I'd really had a spiritual transformation, a time of renewal in my junior year in high school. And because and I was in the midst of it all, I, 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 I kind of tried to keep it a somewhat of a secret, off the one side kind of idea. And I, and I didn't make it all that, con, no, all that known to people. When I got to college, I decided I was going to go a different route. Got there early, you know, football practice started like 10 days before school did, and I got there, and, 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 and very early on, you know, in my journey, I, I started to make it known to my teammates and the guys who were going to live on my floor that, that I was a, a follower of Christ. And I made the commitments that backed it up. I got active in a local church, and I started leading their youth group, and I can remember at the end of my first semester, my college roommate saying to me, you know, it was a Wednesday night when in the middle of finals weeks, I had two finals the next day at 8 and at 10, 10.30, and I was heading out the door with my Bible to lead youth group on Wednesday night. And he said, what are you, nuts? 
You know, you should gotta be here studying, you know, kind of idea. And it was, it's amazing sometimes to see just the power of this personal commitment, of putting yourself out there and saying, this is what I'm going to stand for, this is what I'm going to do, and you back it up with action. It is incredible power in making a difference. Third, this idea of just kind of embracing the role of the Word in our lives. One of the incredible messages here, and you see it in in chapter 34, verse 26, is Huldah's talking about um, Josiah. She says that in verse 27, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against this inhabitants. And because you humbled yourself before me and tore your clothes and wept before me, I myself have heard. It, it, just responding to the word of God is powerful. You know, Rebecca testified to the fact that sometimes we can just get into, you know, we kind of flip through the pages just to get things checked off. I've done my quiet time today. But, but really responding to the Word of God, re- receiving it into our lives, figuring out what we need to do about it, can have a huge impact. You and I need to understand that making a difference is not a result of what we do for God, but making a difference is a result of what God does in us. Let that sink in for a moment. We, we, we sometimes think that here's all the things that I need to do for God, all the things I can do to really, and really what makes a difference, the eternal impact comes from what God does in us as we embrace His activity. And that starts with the interaction with the Word of God in our lives. Lastly, and I know I'm moving very fast, in order for you and I to be people who make a difference, the kinds of people that God uses to change things, you, 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 you read about the culture of, of Josiah to me, it doesn't seem a whole lot different than our own. We lament a lot of things that are happening in our society, the direction that it's going, the level of self-indulgence that's being embraced as, as being our right, if you will. It's incredible, but one of the ways that that is going to get turned around is if you and I remain teachable. I, I want you to see this in the context of Jeremiah. What, I mean, of, of Josiah. When did Josiah start seeking the Lord? When he was how old? When did he start tearing down the high places and really kind of reforming the place? When did he first meet the Word of God? When he was 26. He's a decade into it, right? And, and he hears the Word of God. What's his response? Well, I've already done a lot of stuff for God. I mean, I, I, I mean I've already changed a lot of things, and I'm working hard at this, and I'm spending a lot of money in the temple, all this kind of stuff. I've done a lot of stuff. That's not his reaction. He embraces it warmly. His heart is tender. He's humble before God. I think... Staying humble for, before God, being teachable, really rests in the fact that you and I are not captivated by how far we've come or how much we've already done. But it's really, it really is centered in the fact that you and I are captivated by how much God still needs to do in us and how far we still have to go. We get to a place where we can rest. And, 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 and we lose that, that thrill, uh, that desire, that urgency to move forward. And when that happens, we stop being teachable. Give me a practical example. Most of you in here are homeowners, right? When you first move in, there's just a flurry of activity on your house, right? You're painting rooms and fixing windows and putting down new carpet and doing all this other kinds of stuff. And then you get to a point like I am. We've been in our house for 18 years. And I'm looking at it the last three springs in a row saying, it really needs to be painted, doesn't it? I should paint that. I'll put that on next year's agenda. You know, I mean, you know, when we first get it, we, there's a lot of things. But we get to the place, well, I've already done a lot of stuff to this place. We fixed the basement. We did this. We did that. You know, we fixed the roof. You know, and we just, we just lose our zeal. When you and I remain teachable before God, humble, it's, 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 we're not focused on how far we've come. 
We're not focused on how much we've already done. We're focused on how far we still have to go. And we're still captivated by all the things that God can do through us. Josiah is an incredible figure. He leaves us a great legacy. He shows us what it really takes to be a person who makes a difference. He left a legacy. And I believe through God's word, he invites us to leave a legacy behind us. A legacy of people who make a difference. Is that even on your agenda right now? It's interesting. Sometimes our lives get so busy, we forget to ask ourselves the question, what legacy am I leaving to those who are around me? Let it be a legacy of making a difference that changes our communities, changes our world, changes our families, changes us. Let's pray together. God, we've moved very quickly through Josiah today. I, I, I'm almost overwhelmed by the courage that this young man had to stand up against just an incredible current that was trying to take him in a different direction. And yet he stood for God, sought him out, and did what was right in his eyes. God, we live in a culture that seems to be rushing by us in the wrong direction at a pace that we just can't even imagine or stand against. But God, you need difference makers today, just as you did then. Let us be a people of your word, people who are teachable, people who are captivated by how far we still have to do and all the things, how far we still have to go and all the things that you can still do in and through us. And God, lead us to be people who make commitment and back it up with action so that you can change the world through us. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I want to invite our worship team to come forward.